0: Hey Jimmy. Hey Angela. This is books
1: Books are are good, Good. actually. Actually, (laughs) actually, we we actually did it perfectly again. Good. So, (laughs) so um, we've we've had a pretty fruitful January, would you say? Um, Oh yeah, for sure. uh, We've we've done some reading. We've done some uh, watching of of uh, Rand philosophy eh, last night in particular. Um, what did we watch last night? We watched Spice World last night. And uh, who did we discover is in Spice World?
0: We discovered, and I technically rediscovered, that Roger Moore is in Spice World. 007 himself was in Spice
1: World. Well, oh, one of his personalities. Yeah, one of them. Uh, and. He, uh, he seemed to truly embody what we have been reading this month. At least I, I feel that way. And I think you do, too.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Otherwise, I would have never brought up Spice World.
1: <laughs> um, so do you want to say it or can I say it? You can say it. Okay. So he brings to us this wisdom that we're going to use as a jumping off point. The headless chicken can only know where he's been. He cannot see where he's going. And so for this month, we read Zizek's Less Than Nothing, uh, which is a, an a 1,000 plus page tome that uh, is a re-examination, an explanation, uh, a circuitous meandering through, uh, and a bit of a a, a, a love letter to Hegel. Uh, through the lens of Lacan and a number of other philosophers and pop culture, but mostly other philosophers.
0: Yeah, pop culture is mentioned a couple of times, um, which is funny because there's like a couple of like French movies that I've never heard of before. And like, yeah, it's like this. and I'm just like, I'm glad you're describing this fucking movie because otherwise I would have been like, yep, I guess this is the thing <laughs> you're trying to relate to. Um
1: mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Um, he flops occasionally with his pop culture references, um, but they, they usually do a good job of properly teasing out what it is that he's trying to get at when otherwise you could just be stuck reading the same paragraphs over and over to try and gather meaning from them. Um, we read, what is it? Six chapters? Uh, just about if we were kind of
0: interludes as chapters, sure.
1: Yeah. Um, which are we? Are we counting the um, the 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 prelude? Or yeah, because um... that
0: prelude yeah. was pretty important to kind of get the sense of where
1: the book was going to go. Then yeah, six chapters, and. <sighs> This is going to be kind of a free-form episode. We're not going to have nearly as rigid uh, a question set. Uh, One, because we're not done. Two, because uh, I can't claim to fully understand this. Uh, Can you? Oh, no.
0: Definitely not. I came in this pretty cold, like... I knew Zhuzhek from the Jordan Peterson debate. And by new, I mean, I know that thing happened and that Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. didn't read the Communist Manifesto. So I was like, all right, well, I don't really need to watch this because it's just going to be, like, I'm not saying boring, but... It's going to be
1: a dunk session.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah. I won't really learn a whole lot, probably. So... And then people just had memes about Zhuzhek and him his, his sniffling and mannerisms. That's, that's like, mm. kind of how I came into this book. I'm like... I just know it's this guy who sniffles a lot and um, he slurs and um, he, everyone loves him. And by love him, I mean, they—they they are he's a pretty prominent guy that people will use to quote uh, his arguments or something like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had a bit more familiarity uh, with Zizek. I had watched his while back so i'm going to wikipedia to figure out what i had watched filmography um i had watched the pervert's guide to ideology which came out in 2012 um and i had seen a couple of like his talks on youtube but not a lot um so i was pretty Aware of what we were going to be getting into as far as like his writing style. Uh, but as far as like his actual academic writing, it's not something that I had encountered either.
0: Right. And this book is kind of positioned as the academic tomb mm-hmm. of his mm-hmm. work.
1: Yeah. no, this is definitely like a defining work for him. Because um, from what other reviews were saying, a lot of its other stuff, like, is is either, like, focused on pop culture or, or cultural critique. Um, there are some, like, actual other academic works, but nothing of this scope.
0: Right. So, um, kind of comparing to our long 20th century of a... There's kind of a narrative. It is academic, but it's drier and two it's a little bit easier to kind of follow along and probably because it's more historical you know you do have your dates or whatever and it needs to kind of lead into like the point this book seems to kind of jump around quite a bit um and kind of grab bag a bunch of different aspects to like prove the point like um i believe it was in chapter two there was like talk of christianity and the big other, and then it goes into some, like, completely different thing, like, after. Like, mm-hmm. I would understand that part, and then the next section, because I'll read section by section, just because at for point I would start eyes would glaze over, I would have to, like, I would have to reread shit, so I was like, alright, I'll just stop reading mm-hmm. at certain points, because I cannot, like, I'm not absorbing this information. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, I, I physically, like, had to, like, stand up, and and move around in between like reading some pages because I would otherwise fall asleep. Yeah. Um, Not that it's bad writing. It's just brain turn off.
0: Yeah. Um like it was funny I was reading I was trying to find some discussion questions or anything um for this book and it was funny I found a Reddit thread where on the Shushek subreddit and they're like, Do I need to read anything before jumping in? And people are like, no, you can just jump in. And I feel like that's just not correct. <laughs> um, Especially
1: chapter one. Yeah. Like chapter one, I feel like a zizek like being like, this is a wall. If you can climb this wall, you can continue into my property. If you cannot climb this wall, you did not deserve to come into my property.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, did you did you come with the equipment to climb the wall? Well, if you didn't, have fun,
1: I guess. Yep. You know. Yep. Um, so for context, listeners, uh chapter 1 is Žižek going over um was it Socrates's uh parmenides? Yes. Um and exploring the 8 plus 1 hypotheses regarding Um, being and nothingness that uh, are expounded on in that piece and it's a lot of like uh, supposing uh, being supposing um, non-being supposing not as being and all of like the non-being and then the not as being being different things uh, it's a mess yeah Not, not like from like an an argumentative point i'm sure like everything makes sense but i didn't take away much from it yeah i think
0: also i guess we're trying to be really good faith here and not just be like this just makes no sense or it's just um crap or anything Mm -hmm. like we're going to try to be like uh, we're going to take this as seriously as possible because i it was funny i i uh Earlier today, I read a current affairs article about, like, who needs Shushik? And it went through, like, oh, he his um he wrote a book about the, you know, migrant or immigrant crisis in the EU. And some stuff about he was kind of critical of Muslim. And, uh, sorry, not Muslims. Wow. Well, yes, but Islam and blah blah So there was that. And then there was also the, like, oh, if you read this, like if you read this uh like paragraph or passage what do you like what category of people do you fall into like either do you think it's great or do you think it's nonsense or do you just not get it and it's nonsense you know stuff like that and i but mm-hmm. it felt like this person's had like a bone to pick with shushek like he mm-hmm. um i felt like was going to willfully be like kind of bad faith about it so i guess you know we're not going to try to be like oh yeah um, this makes complete and total sense when, like, we feel like we it didn't. You know, we're not gonna mm-hmm. try to go bad or I guess we're try to be quote-unquote centrist here. Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> so, and uh, I will also put forward that, like, that was only the case for the first chapter for me. Okay. Where I was, like, struggling to follow. Yeah. Um, the other chapters, like... More and more come together in a manner in which I can follow them. Like chapter two and chapter three, I would have to like reread paragraphs like and sometimes read them aloud to someone else to like grasp what it is that was being addressed. But um, the last couple chapters, four and then the interlude, they were fine. Yeah.
0: I thought, um, yeah, chapter one was definitely a, it felt more of a kind of a logic puzzle Mm -hmm. in a way. Um, you know, cause like it kind of reminded me of just like discrete math and stuff like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of just like, okay, so we need to solve for X, but there's these rules that you need to like follow to in order to get there. Um, which was interesting, but yeah, it was a at times a little bit hard to follow, but I think you're supposed to kind of perhaps find the contradictions that other philosophers that he brought up were trying to also solve for or try to resolve
1: mhm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, um there was also yeah, so that's what two and three definitely are, um. To being like the the different like a him expounding about like Christian philosophy because so much of philosophy was it for the longest time focused on Christian like philosophy right um, which up until Hegel is like the mode of philosophy well really up until Kant um, and then. Two also had a lot to do with like the differences between like Buddhist, like like Nirvana versus like the the non-being of like Kantian philosophy, um, and then three was all about Fitchy, and seemed like mostly uh, a a rereading of Fitchy in a more generous light because he did a lot of defending Fitchy against his detractors um and used I I don't know is it Fitchy is it Fitch is
0: it Uh, I'm not sure I I in my head I said Fitchy so
1: okay so we'll go with Fitchy um and also using Fitchy's writing as like coming to understand a precursor to what Hegel will do. Um, yeah, that's that's what I got.
0: Yeah, Fitchy was talking about I and the not I and mm-hmm. the subject. And um, the, the uns. Yeah, and that's kind of what I got from that. I, It was interesting. I kind of understood like every time he was like, yes, the not I, not being, I was like, okay, I'm going to solve this like a math problem where mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. the thing. Um and in a way, yeah, you could do that, but I probably was trying to reconceptualize what he's trying to say and probably spent too much brain power trying to do that mm. while reading.
1: But I, so the the way I view the not I through all of this is it could be like a single object or all objects or like all all things that are not the i so anything from like a finite not i to an infinite not i right uh, yeah it's <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> pull something out um do do you want to maybe like how do you i i guess how do you feel uh, about going forward with the rest of this do you feel like it's going to be Something productive for you? Or is this just a mountain to climb?
0: No, I feel like it probably will be productive for me. I probably need to actually do some extra outside work to perhaps understand the other arguments so that I can understand, like, the defense of, you know, uh, for example, you know, chapter three, like, Fitchy, um, and... Um, you know, I like. I didn't realize until reading this book how much Marx did pull from Hegel. So I feel like this is something that I should like read, so I can understand a bit more of the philosophical basis. Now, Hegel or Marx? Uh, Marx. You know, okay. like yeah. Um, granted, I under like I understand. People already have said, and even like in the book. Hegel is very difficult to understand like mm-hmm. um, and I understand I won't always I probably won't understand like maybe 10% but mm-hmm. perhaps that will make the arguments better because I, I feel like sometimes when granted I'm not a uh, part of the debate sphere. I don't plan I don't have any aspirations but it is interesting kind of how I guess people who feel like they're that or that they're really good at debate and when it gets down to like brass tacks they really can't explain sufficiently their like philosophy about why they're doing things and you know you're probably thinking well maybe they shouldn't and it's like well yeah but sometimes they just back themselves into that corner and don't know how to get out so i mm-hmm. feel like mm-hmm. this will maybe perhaps help with like that thought process
1: mm-hmm and or it might be in, a bunch
0: of bullshit. I don't know. For, uh,
1: uh, no. Uh I, I don't uh with how focused like um philosophical thought seems to be uh both around understanding Hegel and then after Hegel trying to overcome Hegel, um, I definitely think it's really important to get an understanding of Hegel. Um I don't know about reading Hegel. Yeah. um, But maybe reading somebody else talking about Hegel that isn't Zizek that maybe goes a bit more like, I definitely feel like in each chapter Zizek is going like A to B to C to D. Right. Even if like A and then B is like the negation of A for the purpose of struggling with like why was your like presupposition of A correct or not correct to then get to C, uh, which that that article you you linked earlier that we'll include in the show notes um, talked about a bit how Žižek likes to use like an assumption and then negates that assumption. Or like argues against that assumption to um, either try to force you to reconceptualize why you assumed a in the first place or why you are looking to defend a, which is which is very Hegelian. Right. I'm picking up. Um, however, um, as much as that may be a good way to like get to come to understand something in the long term, like. A supplemental material that is more just direct would probably be good instead of trying to supplement Zizek with Hegel.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I just, it's kind of like uh, this book feels like you are reading the seventh book in a 20th book um, series, and there's a lot of just background characters and stuff you don't know. And then there's like a mm-hmm. new character. And then you figure out, oh shit, this is a new character for just for this book that will only show up in this book, but they're still very important. So you can't really like mm-hmm. skip over them. Yeah. So you know, that's that's like me personally. Like I probably won't read Hegel, but I can probably do like here's a cliff notes. I'm like, okay, this is the response. And by Cliff Notes I mean yeah. eh, some yeah. understanding.
1: Um uh, well, that's I mean, that is a perfect description of how this book functions because like it's not just hegel like hegel's hegel's the main character of the series it feels right. like and like lacan is like I don't know they' their antagonist that like at the same time is working towards the same goal
0: I would say a rival I, I feel like that's right. kind of okay. kind of like they're they're you know for making a narrative story yes he's a rival they're mm-hmm. he's going he's someone who's a in the way or trying to kind of not necessarily undermine the character, but they are something that Hegel has to overcome, but they're still trying to go towards there. Yeah.
1: Hegels are Ash Ketchum. Yes. And Lacan is our Gary Oak. Yes. Okay. Um, But then like you have to contend with him throwing in like Derrida and Deleuze and Foucault and um, Heidegger. And uh, Schelling and uh, Freud, and there there are more um, yeah there are there are French names that I cannot pronounce no um, and it's uh, while when they are brought up in the context that they are brought up in the way that he talks about them, it makes sense, even if it needs to be like read again a second time sometimes um. Oh, he talks about Badu a lot.
0: Yes, Badu a lot.
1: Um at the same time. Oh, and of course, Marx. Um, not Engels. No. Um, he's mentioned Lenin a couple times. He's mentioned Stalin derisively, um now once or twice, but never angles. Um, but like on top of like reading. Ideally, reading like someone else writing about Hegel to get like a more direct understanding before like also tackling this. Right. Ideally, we would read all about all of these others.
0: Yeah. Um like Schuzek like, does do a good job of like, hey, so this is someone else they kind of disagreed or they also got to the same point or a couple other things, which is like, oh, okay, this is a nice context film. However, I'm still not getting the full picture about what the, you know, point is, or, like, what are we trying to get to? Um, so, you know, um, I felt like the chapter two was really good for me, because I, it that was a pretty easy to understand about the big other, and if there's <laughs> not a big other, then, like, how does, like, essentially, kind of putting the thought of, like, so... With Christianity there generally there is a big other, which is God, or mm-hmm. do they think that there isn't you know some type of God that is like doing something with reality and or there's not a big other, and then Christians turn out to be the actual ultimate atheists because
1: they um they're positing the big other within themselves and God yeah. Is dead yeah. Yes. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I have a feeling that pretty much any Christian I go and talk to about this would be like, no, God's real.
0: Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking too. I'm like, you, yeah, sure, you can argue this, but like at the, sa- like at the end of the day, they're like, no, God is real and he flows through me.
1: And I, yeah. you know, I... Yeah. So, but then, then, like, if you were to be like, okay, how does God flow through you, and it'd be like, well, I feel the the Spirit when I'm I'm at church, and I I feel the Spirit when I good do good deeds for other people. It's just like so you you feel God when you're engaging with your community. So, God is just your community. Yeah. Okay. So. Shushek is right. You just don't want to admit it.
0: Yeah, but you know that's not a that's not a great point of trying to change someone's mind, right?
1: Yes. 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 Um, do you want to do you want to start ping ponging uh, passages?
0: Yeah, let's go into that. So I I only highlighted two. Jimmy highlighted you know a billion because he reads better
1: <laughs> than I do. Um, uh, I would disagree <laughs> in the sense of like. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Screenshot. Move on.
0: All right. Um. So, this is on page uh 218. I'm gonna read the entire um. Oh my goodness, the entire paragraph. And this is on chapter. One second. Let me. I think I this is see. chapter four.
1: Oh. Okay. That um, makes sense.
0: That makes yeah. sense. Yeah um the this is the ultimate lesson of hegel's anti-mobilism dialectics has nothing whatsoever to do with the historicist justification of a particular politics or practice at a certain stage of historical development a justification which may then lo- be lost at a later higher stage reacting to the revelation of stalin's crime at the 20th congress of the soviet communist party Brecht noted how the same political agent who had earlier played an important role in the revolutionary process stalin had now become an obstacle to it and praise this as a proper dialectical insight but one should thoroughly reject this logic in the dialectical analysis of history on the contrary each new stage rewrites the past and retroactively delegitimizes the uh, the previous one mm-hmm. so i thought this was um interesting because uh when we talked about hammer and hill last time we kind of mentioned like we need to kind of contend with like ussrs you know stalin's history you know, stuff like that and That, I feel like, has always been a problem, because, like, you know, you you can't be, like, genocide bad, Stalin good, and then everyone's gonna be like, well, what the fuck, like, what's, why are you being a hypocrite? (laughs) So, um, I think, uh especially the part with in the dialectical analysis history on the contrary, each new stage rewrites the past retroactively deal with as the previous one, oh, yeah. I feel like that's really important to understand because um, that's kind of also how we like view other people. Um, mm-hmm. Like in the past, you can be like, wow, that person, like uh, the same person, A, was like a complete dick to you, but then like later on, they're actually really nice. They're very... Like courteous to you, they may apologize or whatever, and that kind of erases like their bad, like your previous conception of them as a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: um, yeah. I think it also, um, it 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 kind of goes to pointing out that like, um, uh, in in the moment to moment realities of life, like you have to take like actions make decisions and engage with the world and it is through those actions and engagements with the world that change occurs yes um and whether and and something that he reiterated over and over again in chapter 4 is that like the only way forward is through wrong choices yeah and you can only know that that choice is wrong when you are looking back.
0: Yeah, it's kind of in a very in another way. It's like uh, analysis for like through paralysis. Like if you overanalyze so much that you don't actually do anything, then like like what's the point? So mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't know. I feel like. I just really like that, uh, like part just of kind of like, um, also I think trying to not, uh, um, think of the, like, of, um, not like, I want to say venerating or like really putting a lot of stock in the past, like
1: mm-hmm.
0: having, cause, um, when we talked about, uh, you know, the couple things about fascism, and how there's a lot of stock into a past that never was a thing. I mm-hmm. feel like sometimes as leftists we also kind of fall in that trap too where we kind of are like, yeah, so like yeah, we know that um in the past like we all fbi like fucked over leftist uh um you know, movements in America, but like in the end a lot of people like in the 60s still managed to create a socialist like thing or like countries which is like yes but at the same time like things are different now that was the 60s or the 1920s mm-hmm. like it, we mm-hmm. have to move forward yes and maybe some of the tactics that are used then are probably like helpful but like we need to just go we cannot yes. keep just sitting here and complaining talk about oh well we should do these tactics because they worked then it's like okay, sure, I guess, but, like, let's just go. Let's go.
1: Exactly. Like, those tactics worked because of the time and conditions in which they were enacted. We can learn from those, um, but only in the sense of taking those ideas, like, taking those ideas and applying them purely as they were in the now will fail. Yeah. Um, But that may be a good thing in the sense of the only way to discover the new tactics for the now is through failure. Right. So like uh, a great example, whether you think the Hong Kong protests were a CIA op or whether you think they were actually like uh, a struggle against like an authoritarian uh, government, uh, both locally in Hong Kong and then more so from uh, mainland China, Um, like the evolution of tactics that they went through regarding their protests, and then how those tactics spread and enabled other protests throughout the world to better engage with the new realities of the police state that most of us exist under, um, was a very good example of how to take the the spirit of a particular uh, ethos of protest and update it, yes, for the current conditions.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, great example of that. Um, even um, with Black Lives Matter protests, you know, um, in 2020, that even had a you know evolution of tactics. A lot of people mm-hmm. took those things from Hong Kong and Use those, and you know the use of technology of spreading you know of uh, using you know whatsapp or other encrypted or um yeah whatsapp and uh signal. signal, yeah, to communicate and be able to keep people safe or try to keep people safe, you know
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: all right, what is a, a passage that you have? I only have one more, so you can go
1: so this is also from chapter Four. Um, it's gonna be a little bit longer than what you read. Okay, yeah. Uh Hegel remains a profoundly Christian thinker, a nihilist whose basic strategy is to repackage profound defeat, to withdraw from life in all its painful vitality as a triumph of the absolute subject. That is to say, from the standpoint of the will to power. The effective content of the Hegelian process is one one long story of defeats and withdrawals, of sacrifices of vital self-assertion. Again and again, one has to renounce vital engagement as still too immediate and particular. Exemplary here is Hegel's passage from the revolutionary terror to the Kantian morality. The utilitarian subject of civil society, the subject who wants to reduce the state to being the guardian of his private safety and well-being, has to be crushed by the terror of the revolutionary state, which can annihilate him at any moment for no reason whatsoever. The subject is not punished for something he has done, for some particular content or act, but for the very fact of being an independent individual opposed to the universal. This terror is his truth. So how do we pass from revolutionary terror to Kant's autonomous and free moral subject? By way of what, in more contemporary language, one could call a full identification with the aggressor? the subject should recognize in the external terror, in this negativity which constantly threatens to annihilate him, the very core of his universal subjectivity. In other words, he should fully identify it. Freedom is is thus not from a master, but the replacement of one master with another. The external master is replaced with an internal one. The price for this identification is, of course, the sacrifice of all pathological particular content. Duty should be accomplished for the sake of duty. Um, so that section, I think, is saying, uh, Hegel was like the was thinking like the only way to deal with like the police state is to put a cop in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I feel about that.
0: I guess, yeah, that's um, I, I think in a way Hegel's kind of describing nationalism you know like mm-hmm. you're going to do something for the greater good not because mm-hmm. someone tells you to do it but because you feel the duty of doing it for your fellow man or for your fellow mm-hmm. like the the greater the 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 sum of your you know society i mm-hmm. think that is kind of what he like i for me i'm taking away like kind of a nationalism like or you know like uh, world war 2 like propaganda right you're doing sure. Like, that's kind of... Your duty like, for the I'm sake thinking. of duty. Yeah, because we need to fight this other... Granted, he's not saying we need, we're need. we trying to do this to protect our, or defend our <clears throat> way of being, but, um, you know, there's something to defend or to do for the sake of good.
1: Mm-hmm. It It continues in the section a couple pages later. In short, the subject has to fully identify with the force that threatens to wipe him out what he feared in fearing death was the negative power of his own self. There is thus no reversal of negativity into positive greatness. The only greatness here is this negative negativity itself. Or, with regard to suffering, Hegel's point is not that the suffering brought about by the alienating labor of renunciation is an intermediary moment that must be patiently endured while we wait for a reward at the end of the tunnel. So, Christian suffering now for salvation later. There is no prize or profit to be gained at the end for our patient submission. Suffering and renunciation are their own reward. All that has to be done is to change our subjective position, to renounce our desperate clinging to our finite selves with their pathological desires, to purify ourselves towards their universality. This is also how Hegel explains the overcoming of tyranny In the history of states. One says that tyranny is overturned by the people because it is undignified, shameful, etc. In reality, it disappears simply because it becomes superfluous. It becomes superfluous when people no longer need the external force of the tyrant to make them renounce their particular interests, but when they become universal citizens by directly identifying the core of their being with this universality. In short, People no longer need the external master when they are educated into doing the job of discipline and subordination themselves. The observe of Hegel's. Well, let's let's talk about that because that that's definitely like reaffirming that last section. Yeah. Um, I also see some f- like Foucault's Discipline and Punish uh, in this, um, though. I would say that like living under a, a a militarized like police state like people definitely still break the law people yeah. definitely are still unhappy with the state um even if we like are able to internalize like the rules like we to for all of us only do so to the extent at which we feel we need to. In any given moment. Like not not saying like. Everyone is an immoral asshole. Just looking to break the law. Wherever they can. Because uh, I do also feel that. Most people are. Without ideology and propaganda. I am of the opinion. That most people are good. Right. Uh, but like. As long as I don't see a cop. I'm going to speed. Yeah. Um. Like the cop is not yet in my head, um, the the observe of Hegel's nihilism or nihilism, all finite determinate forms of life reach their truth in their self-overcoming, is the apparent opposite. In con in continuity with the Platonic metaphysical tradition, he is not ready to give negativity full reign. That is, his dialectics is ultimately an effort to normalize the excess of the negativity. For late Plato already, the problem was. How to relativize or contextualize non being as a subordinate movement of being. Non being is always a particular slash determinate lack of being measured by the fullness it fails to actualize. There is no non being as such. There is always only green, which participates in non being by not being red or any other color. Um, That was that. I think that right there was part of why I clipped this like section is like I wish that statement had been in like chapter one or chapter two. Yeah. Regarding being and non being. Yeah. Um, because that that does an amazing job of being like, okay. So like being is just you're green. You're not red. Red is non being for you. You're just yeah. you consist greenly. Uh, in the same vein Uh, Hegelian negativity serves to prescribe absolute difference or non-being. Negativity is limited to the obliteration of all finite slash immediate determinations. The process of negativity is thus not just a negative process of the self-destruction of the finite. It reaches its telos when finite slash immediate determinations are mediated slash maintained slash elevated, positioned or posited in their truth as ideal notional determinations. What remains after negativity has done its work is the eternal parousia of the ideal notional structure. What is missing here from the Nietzschean standpoint is the affirmative no, the no of the joyous and heroic confrontation with the adversity, the uh, with the adversary, Ugh the know of struggle which aims at self-assertion not self-sublation I I like i read this and I clipped it out and now I'm like I don't understand again yeah
0: the first part <laughs> up until or the part where up until the green red it's like okay cool mm-hmm. and then after that I'm just like how does this reinforce the point
1: Mm-hmm. um stuff about desire building <sighs> oh yeah okay here's another good section, or no mm, okay um here's something interesting um does hallward not look uh, overlook here the retroactive moment on which Deleuze also insists namely how this eternal pure past um And pure past in the sense is like the, like the full gamut of things that have occurred before that are like danned out moments like T.S. Eliot put it, um, known fascist T.S. Eliot uh, is quoted in, in this regarding the pure past and, and putting it in the context of like a, an artist can only create based on the art that has come before them. Um, but in creating art uh, in the now, it, they reform the structure of the great art that came before them to include the art that they are creating now. And so like that is the pure past. The pure past is like all of the the various things that uh, feed into the creation of the now, but then are in turn changed by the act in the now um namely how this eternal pure past which fully determines us is itself subjected to retroactive change we are thus simultaneously less free and more free than we think we are thoroughly passive determined by and dependent on the past but we have the freedom to define the scope of this determination to over determine the past which will determine us the is here unexpectedly close to Kant for whom I am determined by causes but I can retroactively determine which causes will determine me we subjects are passively affected by pathological objects and motivations but in a reflexive way we have the minimal power to accept or reject being affected in this way that is we retroactively determine the causes allowed to determine us or at least the mode of this linear determination so you you choose your motivations functionally from the, the things that have occurred to you uh, or around you or just generally occurred in the past. Right. Um, freedom is thus inherently retroactive. It, at its most elementary, it is not simply a free act which out of nowhere starts a new causal link, but a retroactive act of determining which link or sequence of necessities will determine us. Here, one should add a Hegelian twist to Spinoza. Oh, there's somebody else that we would probably uh, get a lot out of reading as Spinoza. Okay. Um, Freedom is not simply recognized or known necessity, but recognized or an assumed necessity. The necessity constituted or actualized through this recognition. So when Deleuze refers to Prost's description of Vintuil's music that haunts Swan, quote, as if the performers not so much played the little phrase, has executed the rights necessary for it to appear that is why i that's really interesting i like that is a a great way to envision all of this um, that like like the art or the moment or the movement existed if but only for the effort based on the past understandings and past moments and experience to bring it forward. So like, um, uh, Black Lives Matter as, as a movement, uh, could have always have been, but it needed to be, uh, it, it to be, it needed and depended on like certain precursors. Right.
0: Um, um Mm -hmm. i guess in a way this is from chapter four right Mm -hmm. because i think probably my um quote or my passage kind of like is later uh i guess like it kind of the connection is like perhaps understand that how these historical things build up but maybe as individuals Mm -hmm. hmm i'm trying to think about this more Ah, no, uh, if you have something to say, go on and say it.
1: <laughs> um, right now I'm scanning through more clipped out things to try and figure out why I pluck them out. OK, uh, here's another one that that reinforces that. Uh, this is how one should read Hegel's thesis that in the course of the dialectical development, things become what they are. It is not that a temporal deployment merely actualizes some pre existing atemporal conceptual structure. This atemporal conceptual structure is itself the result of the contingent temporal decisions. Let us take an example case of the contingent decision whose outcome defined the agent's entire life, into our life. Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. It is not enough to say that crossing the Rubicon is part of the complete notion of Caesar. One should rather say that Caesar is defined by the fact that he crossed the Rubicon. His life didn't follow a scenario written in the book of some goddess. There's no book which would already have contained the relations of Caesar's life, for the simple reason that his life itself is the book, and that at every moment an event is in itself its own narrative. But why should we not say there uh, that there is simply no atemporal construct- conceptual structure, that all there is is a gradual temporal deployment. Here we encounter the properly dialectical paradox which defines true historicity as opposed to evolutionist historicism, and which was much later in French structuralism formulated as the primacy of synchrony over diachrony. Usually this primacy was taken to mean the ultimate denial of historicity in structuralism. Historical development can be reduced to the imperfect temporal development of a pre-existing atemporal matrix of all possible variations or combinations this simplistic notion of the primacy of synchrony over a diachrony overlooks a properly dialectical point made long ago by uh, among others do i continue with the quote no i don't <laughs> i skip three more pages <laughs> um Okay, here's another interesting thing. The historical example evoked by Lacan to clarify this twofold moment is indicative in its hidden references. In phase one, a man who works at the level of production in our society considers himself to be uh, to belong to the ranks of the proletariat. In phase two, in the name of belonging to it, he joins in a general strike. Lacan's implicit reference here is to Lukacs's. History and Class Consciousness, a classic Marxist work from 1923 whose widely acclaimed French translation was published in the mid-1950s. For Lukács, consciousness is opposed to mere knowledge of an object. Knowledge is external to the known object, while consciousness is in itself practical, an act which changes its very object. Once a worker considers himself to belong to the ranks of the proletariat, This changes his very reality, he acts differently. One does something, one counts oneself as, or declares oneself, the one who did it. And on the base of this declaration, one does something new. The proper moment of subjective transformation occurs at the moment of declaration, not at the moment of the act. This reflexive moment of declaration means that every utterance not only transmits some context, but also simultaneously determines how the subject relates to this content. Even the most down-to-earth objects and activities always contain such a declarative dimension which constitutes the ideology of everyday life. Which I take away from that, um, even if you are joking about something, be careful what you're joking about because the statements that you make you can potentially identify with, even if you do not mean to. And as a result, change your being and how you interact with the world. Yeah. Uh, this is literally irony poisoning. Yes. But <laughs> yes, but beyond like that, there's also the positive dimension, which like affirming for yourself that you are a thing or that you believe a thing. can then enable you to engage in things that a person who is or believes those things would engage with
0: yeah um this is uh this is also kind of um kind of same as positive thinking positive like visualization things like that um Mm -hmm. if you ever listen to folks who do a lot of sports or an or as an athlete generally this is this is kind of what they talk about trying to be successful like in their sport mm. you know i it's... saw
1: myself exactly sinking the the golf ball yep uh and and uh i i actualized it or yeah exactly yeah. except with just anything in your life not just like yeah um whether positive or negative correct yeah um hmm.
0: And that's Do kind of why, sorry, you. this is kind of why sometimes it's very difficult to get people out of certain positions because they've pretty much visualized and actualized this is the thing that they should be thinking or are. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's why it's sometimes difficult to really change someone's mind.
1: Yeah, because you're you're not necessarily like, they are not outside of the argument. They are consumed by the argument. Right. Um, hmm. Uh, what else? Um, that's pretty much all I can really pluck out. There were early on. Let's see if I can find any of the jokes that I plucked out. Okay. I think for next month, uh, we should both do this beforehand.
0: <laughs> no, let's just do everything ad hoc, and I'll have to edit out a bunch of dead air.
1: Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Um, So this is a good example of Anstos uh, from Chapter 3. Anstos being the object within yourself that you struggle with that creates drive. Um, This is uh, pre-Galian philosophy, post-Kantian, developed by Fitchick. Uh, To recapitulate, Anstos is formally homologous to the Lacanian object A. Like a magnetic field, it is the focus of the eye's positing activity, the point around which this activity circulates. Yet it is in itself entirely insubstantial, since it is created or posited, generated, by the very process which reacts to it and deals with it. It is like in the old joke about the construct, who pleads insanity in order to avoid military service. His symptom was to compulsively examine every paper within reach and exclaim, that's not it. When examined by the military psychiatrist, he does the same. So the psychiatrist finally gave him a paper confirming his release from military service. Conscript reaches for it, examines it, and exclaims, that's it. (laughs) Here also, the search itself generates the object. Um, and therein resides the ultimate paradox of the Fitchian Anstos. It is not immediately external to the circular moment uh, movement of reflection, but an object which is posited by this very self-referential movement. Um, I thought that was decent. Um, there was also the joke in, I think it was in the, like the intro, the preface, regarding um, the uh various um uh jewish men at temple who um, a rich man goes up to the the altar and proclaims like oh god um please forgive me um i am less than nothing and then a poor man follows him up to the altar and says next oh god please forgive me i am less than nothing and then the rich man turns to the rabbi and says who's this guy to claim he's less than nothing yeah um he yeah that's that's pretty much all i got at this point um uh do you want to oh we still have question number four
0: we do um but i feel like we should probably talk about our definition of dialectical materialism or dialectics or dialectics, before we get to four. Or we can kind of wrap it into the same thing. Like, mm-hmm. kind of wrap it.
1: Uh, cause, well, because dialectical materialism is like Marx's thing. Okay. Whereas, like, dialectics is Hegel. So, like, dialectic materialism is like a re- understanding of dialectics.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, see, this is what I get for not reading I mean, any hegel that's my
1: takeaway i mean i haven't i haven't read any hegel either but like uh i have i have listened to a lot of other people talk about marx and hegel and other like post like materialists um so that's my understanding is that hegel formulated dialectics and then Marx uh, created the, the, functionally, like the subsection of dialectics, which is dialectical materialism.
0: Okay. Um, so, I guess going off of that, what is a definition, or like, uh, what is your definition of dialectics?
1: Dialectics. Um, so, the common definition of dialectics that is floating around is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Okay which implies, like, I have a goal. I am Ash Ketchum, and I have a nemesis, uh, Gary Oak. And it is only through our struggle to against each other that um, one of us becomes, like, the Pokemon master. But this is an incorrect reading of Hegel from mm, both what I've listened to previously and what we've been reading here. Um, dialectics is that you have a, a being or position or thing. You have you have a, a a being, whatever it is, and within it it contains its negation. So it's not like there is an external Garyoke. Um, the negation consists within ash. It's his um, inability to actually put together a good team. Um, <laughs> okay. But it is through failing to put together a good team and through his failures over the show to become a Pokemon master that he comes to um, the, the, the post negation. I can't think of what the term is right now. Um, like actualization of the lessons that he learns through all of his internal struggles. Um, and Hegel primarily, at least so far, at least in chapter, well, in chapter three, Fitch was using, uh, like a similar, semi-similar negation scheme to like discuss, like whether we can, like whether we are or not, um, positing the uh, internal struggle against an object within ourselves, the Mm anstos, to differentiate the being from the non-being. But Hegel doesn't, like, doesn't seem to, like, need an object within ourselves. It is entirely in ourselves, our negation at all times. Right. Or within, like, any... Any particular like um, the the advent of capitalism created its negation in the working class, and it is in capitalism that negation always is and is struggling against it. Um, in and then ideally, what the working class wants to see is a movement past capitalism to something that is not capitalism, but capitalism wants the negation of the working class to result in, like, capitalism prime. Some, some new form of lesson or, or uh, result that it has learned through its failure.
0: Okay. Um, I can, I can kind of see, I can understand where I, I, under, I can kind of see where people get the synthesis or thesis. Analysis synthesis, pattern. Uh, thesis
1: antithesis.
0: Sorry, thesis antithesis, and then uh, synthesis pattern. Yes Because. Yeah. Yeah, like because of capitalism, there is a exploitation causes the alienate you know alienation within the working class, and they themselves will discover that they need to make something else, or yes. they're exploited to make not capitalism.
1: Yes. Which, like, most people's readings of Hegel are in in the world. Most people's readings of Hegel are probably through Marx or some uh, post-Marxist philosophy. Right. Or, like, third-hand through someone who is, like, engaged with someone engaging with post-Marxist philosophy. So that's, it's not surprising that that occurred because that, that seems like the obvious takeaway of like, you have a concept and you have something else that is struggling against it. And from that, some new thing occurs, but it's both the concept and the struggle against it are internal to the concept. Right. Um, Um,
0: mm -hmm. Oh, uh, so I recall that in uh, less than nothing, I think like criticism, or maybe it was someone else's criticism, was that Hegel was talking about the state and monarchy being rational. Mm -hmm. And I, unfortunately, that's just like the big, I think, I think it was like the big other was the state. And that was not a good thing.
1: Um, Or... Um, So, I do remember that as well. Um, And I think I plucked a section out about that i think it was in chapter 4 might have been chapter 3 i definitely think it was in chapter 4 it probably was okay um okay in other words the point of hegel's analysis of the revolutionary terror is not the rather obvious insight into how the revolutionary project involved the unilateral assertion of abstract universal reason and was such doomed to perish in self-destructive fury being unable to transpose its revolutionary energy into a stable order. Hegel's point is rather to highlight the enigma of why, in spite of the fact that revolutionary terror was a historical deadlock, we have to pass through it in order to arrive at the modern rational state. Here also, then, one has to do something, offer an apology, enact a reign of terror, in order to see how it is superfluous. Uh, this paradox is sustained by the distinction between the constitutive and performative dimensions of speech, between the subject of the enunciated and the subject of the enunciation. At the level of the enunciated content, the whole operation is meaningless. Why do it offer an apology go through the terror when it is superfluous? However, What this common sense insight forgets is that the only wrong superfluous gesture creates the subjective conditions which make it possible for the subject to really see why the gesture is superfluous. It only becomes possible to say that my apology is unnecessary after I have offered it, to see how the terror is superfluous and destructive after one has gone through it. The dialectical process is thus more refined than it may appear. The standard notion is that one can only arrive at the final truth along the path of error, so the errors along the way are not simply discarded, but sublated in the final truth, preserved in it as its moments. The evolutionary notion of dialectical process tells us that the result is not just a dead body, that it does not stand alone in abstraction from and I did not copy the prior the next page. Okay. Um let me look at page. 20 of chapter 4 because I think that has something that I wanted to pull out as a quote um, was the whole um, apology thing
0: oh right if you offend someone and if you offer an apology and they said well I wasn't offended or an apology wasn't necessary which was kind of what the what you just read kind of went into
1: yeah Um, Here's an unexpected example. At the end of Howard Hawks' classic Western, Red River, a psychologically unfounded twist occurs, which is usually dismissed as a simple weakness of the script. Uh, The entire film moves towards the climactic confrontation between Dunson and Matt, a duel of almost mythic proportions predestined by fate, as an inexorable conflict between the two incompatible subjective stances. In the final scene, Dunson approaches Matt with the determination of a tragic hero, blinded by his hatred and marching towards his ruin. The brutal fistfight, which then ensues, is unexpectedly ended when Tess, who is in love with Matt, fires a gun into the air and shouts at the two men, anyone with half a mind would know you two love each other. A quick reconciliation follows, with Dunson and Matt chatting like old buddies. This transition of Dunson from anger incarnate, all Achilles, all the time, to sweetness and light, happily yielding the map, is breathtaking in its rapidity. Robert Pippin is fully justified in detecting beneath his technical weakness of the script a deeper message. The struggle for power and supremacy that we have been watching has been a kind of shadow play, a fantasy largely staged by Dunson himself uh, to justify himself. There never was any great struggle, never any real threat of a fight to the death. The mythic struggle we have been watching is itself the result of a kind of self-mythologization, a fantasy narrative frame that is also demythologizing itself in front of us. This is how Hegelian reconciliation works, not as a positive gesture of resolving or overcoming the conflict, but as a retroactive insight into how there was never really a serious conflict, how the two opponents were always on the same side. A little bit like the reconciliation between Figaro and Marcelina in The Marriage of Figaro, where they are brought together by the realization that they are mother and son. This retroactivity accounts also for the specific temporality of reconciliation. Recall the paradox of the process of apologizing. If I hurt someone by making an unkind remark, the proper thing for me to do is offer a sincere apology. And the proper thing for them to do is to say something like, thanks, I appreciate it, but I wasn't offended. I know you didn't mean it, so you don't really owe me an apology. The point, of course, is that despite this final result, one still has to go through the entire process of offering the apology. You owe me no apology can only be said after I have offered an apology, so that although, formally, nothing happens, and the offer of apology is proclaimed unnecessary, something is gained at the end of the process. Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. And it kind of you know, as we said, you won't know until you do the thing that it's wrong or not.
1: hmm mm-hmm.
0: And, yeah. Okay. Uh, if I For next time, if I find it, I'll try to find it again. Because um, I thought there was something about the state and the crown, but perhaps mm-hmm. I see too many capitalized letters and think, yeah, the state as in the the state no, there and was,
1: There was definitely some discussion of, like, uh, Hegel's thoughts on the state and She's being like, well, what he's kind of talking about here is like the like the state at at, at large and like all the different forms it can take. Uh, I do remember that. Okay. Um, I just I don't know where it is.
0: It's fine. No no worries. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um. Definitely, we'll we'll both endeavor to take better notes for next. Yeah.
0: Round. So I guess you explained your. You're finished with your definition, right? Of dialectical or, yeah, dialectics for the moment. For the moment, as of right now, (laughs) as of as of what we understand of dialectics. Yes. Yes. I guess I'm. I'm going to be very boring here, but I agree because I see this connection. I agree with your definition because Chapter Two really kind of hammered it home about like why do Christians do things. Like, why do, why believe in a god when you are the ones doing the thing for this thing, like, for someone else or for something else? Um, And I guess, in a way, Hegel is trying to, like, understand why people would, like, revolt against tyranny or revolt against certain, like the system, or the state, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And also the contradictions with that. Because, like, if you think about it, some people will say, oh, well, in XYZ tyran- like tyrannical government, why are they upset? They get food. They get, mm-hmm. you know, they get, like, money, or they get whatever. Like, why are they upset? And, you know, not, I don't know, that's but Aaron thought this is this is also this podcast is called philosophy thoughts are good actually um, yes <laughs>
1: um, so that, that actually um, brings up something that I, I think if I'm remembering correctly I've heard Zizek say elsewhere that even in a perfectly communist society where not only are all your needs met but um, you do not exist in like a tyrannical state, um, and like we have, we've somehow figured it all out. Like there's no more like external physical suffering due to starvation or want um, of of like a of a physical form. Um, there's no more oppression. There's no more racism. There's no more classism. There will still be struggle. Because at the end of it, like the struggle is eternal within us. Like we are the source of our own struggle. Even even if we say want to pin it on like materialism or like the advent of psychological manipulation through the form of advertising. Um, there there will still be wants and desires. There will still be um there will still be jealousy. There will still be um, external uh, observations that result in internal antagonisms. Right. Um, So, I don't know how that connects, but...
0: (sighs) He, uh, in Less Than Nothing, he does mention, like, it is really silly to think that there will be some type of utopia Mm -hmm. you know, with communism and not really consider just how people i'm not gonna say it's human nature really but just kind of you gotta like really understand that you know as you said yeah there's like internal antagonism that you just do to yourself that is nothing Mm -hmm. to do with external shit
1: Mm -hmm. um and that actually goes to um chapter two because not only was he talking about Christianity, he was also talking about Buddhism and the right. three different forms of Buddhism. Um, the, the, pro, the initial form being like retreating into the self to seek nirvana and pure enlightenment and the like foregoing of the external world, which in turn means that you're foregoing, like, one, you're foregoing the suffering of others. And not working to alleviate the suffering of others. But then two, for those that claim to have reached nirvana, reached enlightenment, they then do not bring it back to others. Right. Um, which like if if we like even if we as a whole, as a society, reach like enlightenment, reach nirvana, um, like like there's still going to be like just due to the fact that, like, the world is not just humans existing in a gray void. There's still going to be, like, external, like, factors. Yeah. That cause strife. Yeah. Even if, say, somehow we all get on the same page and all of our needs are met, and yeah. that strife then, in turn, if you do not like, engage to alleviate it, like, what are you doing?
0: Yeah, um, I... This kind of reminds me of people who have, like, pretty ambitious goals, and they do meet them, and then after that, they're like, oh, no, this didn't really change much for me. Like, Mm -hmm. internally, I'm still struggling with whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um. I was... I'm reading this other book about um this guy who wrote Peak Performance and he talks about in this one about like heroic individualism. I haven't really gotten much into it, but he was talking about how like he developed OCD. He didn't really know at the time, but he was trying to manage it like without before going to a doctor, he was trying to manage it with like all the tips and tricks he learned from like different people and stuff like that, and just made it worse. So like you know, until he like talked to a doctor who's like, "Oh, yeah, so like the things you're doing are making it very worse on yourself, and you need we you need it like we'll develop strategies for you to help manage your o c d and like how to like now live with it, right So I think it's kind of, yeah, like kind of I think hegel is trying to get to that, and I guess maybe Shuujk is trying to um actually more importantly, what Shujek is trying to do is just saying, like, um yeah, if we even if everything is fucking amazing, there's still gonna be this finite or or not finite, this uh yeah, I guess internal antagonism. I'm I'm pretty much saying mm-hmm. the same thing, but mm-hmm. you know.
1: Um I mean that's fine. Uh this the past three or four hundred pages that we read um seem to be doing that as well, just yeah. in different ways yeah which is good because it it really allows allows you to like grasp what it is that it is trying to say right and so in turn listener we do that for you
0: we'll do that for you guys aren't you happy we're 2022 giving uh away things to interpret stuff um but as of right now that's how we have a definition of uh dialectics so
1: now what's your definition of dianetics
0: dianetics is a scam
1: hey me too
0: okay (laughs) (laughs) all right so for our final discussion point um so just as our current reading and definition is returning to hegel the thing to do i love my way of doing questions i wrote this at 7 a.m so you have to excuse Uh, me
1: no you're fine um you want to go first
0: Sure. so I think, in a way, kind of like maybe, I think, what Heigl will do would kind of explain the like what happens at the end will help explain what happens when you get to the goal. Like, once we accomplish whatever we do, and everyone's like, "Well, now what? That will help. The other thing is to like explain why or help explain why people will kind of like do things in a certain ways i do things for Mm -hmm. um for like their community or you know to themselves that they do
1: yeah Yeah. um Um, yeah definitely agree yeah
0: um i think that's kind of where i'm going to leave it off at
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that is why the 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 next section, not the section we're about to read, but the section for March, when we get into him talking primarily about Lacan as a reading of Hegel, um, will be really interesting because Lacan isn't like necessarily a philosopher; he's a psychoanalyst in the same vein as, like, not in the same vein, but, like, came after Freud and Jung. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, I definitely think Hegel is good to return to or to engage with. Um, I don't know if we can say that we're returning to it because, like, I don't think either of us really engaged with it to begin with. Right. Um, But definitely something good to engage with. And even if we disagree, either fundamentally or with some particular part of Hegel, like Zizek is making a very strong case that all modern thought has to grapple with the implications of Hegel.
0: Yes. And
1: so if we want to, in the future, engage with some other thinker, we have to have an understanding of Hegel. Before we can grapple with their
0: thoughts. Yes. -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, I think that's like uh, earlier when I kind of was like, yeah, we need to kind of, I would get something out of this because Marx, actually, yeah, a bunch of philosophers are based off of Hegel. So me kind of, in a way, understanding that would maybe make understanding them a bit better. Mm -hmm. Granted. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be like, well, you're a bad leftist because you didn't read fucking Hegel or whatever, because I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm privileged enough to kind of be able to sit here and read and discuss it with you, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. um, Anything else before we wrap up?
1: Um, Don't forget to brush your teeth, kids.
0: Yeah, don't forget to brush your teeth. Anyway, part... We're going to read the rest of part two for February. It's mm-hmm. going to be probably just as interesting as this first part, hopefully a little bit better with more quotes and stuff. Yes. Um, World however, World. I don't think we're gonna have any more, unless we find another movie that has more uh dialectical type shit in it.
1: Spice World is probably gonna come everywhere. out on top. It's gotta be. I mean, there were definitely a lot of moments where I was just like, is this dialectics? <laughs> um, but. There, there are other films that that uh, I would say every film can be read through a dialectical lens. Um, I mean, I know Shrek can be read through a Marxist lens.
0: Yes, that's so, true. It,
1: all if right, so, if not, will... so it can be read through a dialectical lens.
0: We will channel some Shushek and find some pop culture um, examples for mm-hmm. all of our parts. We will try. I probably will forget. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Anyway, remember, books, books are, are good, good. actually.
1: actually.